0: Welcome to Kind Mind. My name is Michael Todd Fink, but just call me Todd, that's fine. Or whatever you like. And Halloween, Day of the Dead, Celtic New Year, November 1st, which is where we get hallowed eve or Halloween. And all things spooky are upon us as darkness grows and temperatures and leaves drop. So I like reserving some space for these vibes each year. And our next Kind Mind Gathering, Tuesday, October 25th, which once again coincidentally falls on a new moon and a solar eclipse. I think astrologically it's a symbol of facing our fears and transcending. So that fits in with the theme of fear itself. Doors open at 6 p.m. with drinks and food available for purchase and you can also register for a yoga class at 5 pm if interested at the homestead in plano illinois where we now record or one of the places we record these episodes the theme this month is fear itself what is it why do we fear fear but are also attracted or many people are attracted to it in the form of horror films and folklore Is it really an emotion or more of a reflex? I hope you can join us, but if you can't and you'd like to listen in online, Zoom access is granted to Patreon members of this podcast. So if you haven't joined Patreon, you can do so for as little as $5, patreon.com forward slash kindmind. We recently had a poetry chat online, and we'll be doing a lot more of those where we discuss mystic poems the most recent one was called Unending Love by Bengali Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore. So become a member if you haven't yet and access those events and other bonus content. Your support really has made a difference this year. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's enabled me to accelerate the release of episodes. Here's a riddle for you. The one who builds this doesn't want it. The one who buys it doesn't need it. And the one who uses it doesn't know it. What is it? If you want a little time to think about it, you may pause the episode now. It's a coffin, which relates well to the theme of this episode. I want to give a warning for the subject matter as it may be triggering both for those grieving the loss of a loved one especially since this episode doesn't really go much into grief support, but also for those with anxieties about death and dying. However, if that is you, I do believe that part of that anxiety is because we don't have enough space, safe space, to express and connect around our common fate and the uncertainties or insecurities implied by our own mortality. So leaning into that vulnerability, I think, can be enlightening. You may remember the dialogue I had with Sandy Gibson, the founder of Better Place Forest, an alternative, eco-friendly way to have a funeral. Well, I, I recently visited one of these forests in Oregon, Illinois, with my mom when she was visiting. And it was really illuminating for us to be able to talk about end-of-life preferences. She was looking for a tree that might work for her or for me or for anyone in the family. Nobody knows when they're going to go, but to be able to talk about that in a kind and loving way was really good for both of us. And this episode is called The Forward to the Handbook for the Recently Deceased, which is not a real text, but if you've seen the movie Beetlejuice... You may remember that after actors Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis die in the movie, their transition to the afterlife is a little bit bumpy, but they have a guidebook and a wild mentor, Michael Keaton, who plays Beetlejuice. And that handbook actually makes its way back into the hands of the living. But, anyways, it's fun. And it's a play on words. The foreword to me means the funeral, the beginning of the transition. And funerals historically were ceremonies to deal with ghosts, actually. What is a ghost? The concept is based on the ancient belief that there is a spirit or essence that continues to exist without the body after death. And can in some cases interact or haunt the living. This actually led to the development of funerals and rituals to help protect against this and encourage the soul's onward journey. Nearly one in five people say they've seen a ghost. 58% of Americans agree with the statement, places can be haunted by spirits. Ghost stories go back as far as ancient Mesopotamia. Ancient civilizations believed in the afterlife And these tales have figured prominently in the folklore of many cultures around the world. Now, funerals are the various ways we intentionally lay to rest the remains of the deceased. They can be the ceremonies that accompany the final disposition of a corpse. And in this episode, I categorize these funerals in four ways based on the elements of nature. Because we have burials, earth funerals, we have cremations, fire funerals. Cultures have put the corpse in rivers or oceans or had, or like Vikings who had death ships. So there's water funerals. We've had sky funerals or air funerals where different religious traditions place the body or the corpse at higher altitudes to be exposed to sunlight or or birds. And I would imagine that there will be more outer space funerals in the future, maybe first for billionaires, but as we become an interplanetary species, that's bound to be the case. I realized after the talk that I didn't really mention embalmment or mummification, such as happened in ancient Egypt. But mummification relics have been discovered throughout the world that go back 60,000 years ago. I think I left it out originally because the remains remain or are preserved. So in a sense, you could either say this is another kind of space funeral because the remains are kept in space. But since there's not a A final disposition, I I think of that also as not disposing. But now it occurs to me that at a wake or the vigil before a burial ceremony, the body is prepared in such a way as to look alive with makeup and clothes. And this is not a criticism, it's just to acknowledge that it's quite the contrast from say, public cremations in Asia. Another one is uh, tombs, but I, I see tombs as earth funerals, because most tombs are underground. The basis of most ceremonies for the deceased throughout history is permeated by the spiritual beliefs and rituals to honor the mysteries and mythologies that shape the way we say goodbye to the dearly departed. This podcast is always dealing with the nature of self and the nature of reality so we get into illusions of identity and ego and so on but an interesting thing to reflect on here is with necrosis or when parts of the body die but not the person we don't have ceremonies for the formerly alive tissues or organs It's typically disposed of as medical waste in healthcare settings. Conversely, when a person dies, sometimes their organs do not and live on and are donated to another body. So, I guess contemplating this, we can ask, what makes you, you? And what does it mean to be alive or dead? When it comes to ghosts, I share a poem at the end of this episode demonstrating that american poet emily dickinson hypothesized that we are the ghost we the living our bodies are the haunted house or our mind is the haunted house the thoughts the memories are the ghosts and the haunting is the rumination the worry but all this integrating and disintegrating of a corpse with the five elements really constitutes a kind of universal metaphysic or common spirituality with the relationship of appearance to the natural world. It is out of the natural world that we appear and back into the natural world that appearance fades. The world is like a long funeral. The whole context is impermanence. Look around. All in attendance on this earth are the bereaved. It's easy to miss, but many here are privately grieving behind their eyes. It's not just the funeral of others, but also our own slowly unfolding, because as soon as you're born, you begin to die. Death is in the name of the game, life and death, still, we miscalculate how ephemeral all experience is, just as clouds on the horizon can be mistaken for mountains. We often neglect the weight of our neighbor's loss while absorbed in other business. Therefore, we don't have to put a premium on feeling good. Under these conditions, it's not even appropriate at times. Rather, peace, compassion, wisdom, and kindness can make up the proper funeral attire, demeanor, arrangement, and offering. I don't think any of this is morbid because there are still plenty of moments throughout to celebrate. Even when, when attending a funeral, there are moments of laughter, embrace, acceptance, and even transcendence. It's just much sweeter and serendipitous when levity is allowed to come naturally instead of hunting for your own happiness as the modus to deny death and its implications i'll conclude this intro to this episode with a little bit of humor but in no way is it meant to be offensive especially to those who might really be feeling the heaviness of having to plan a funeral for a loved one but the definition according to urban dictionary is an expensive gathering of family and friends to observe a corpse state that the deceased, quote, looks good in his or her coffin, gossip over how the person died, and then cast lots to divide any remaining assets. Often many of the attendees haven't had contact with the deceased in years, but now believe that appearing at the funeral to show support actually matters to a dead person. So, I hope you find wisdom in this episode and feel as though there can be more acceptance for whatever lies ahead and that you can have the courage to talk about end-of-life preferences with your loved ones and i look forward to connecting with you soon maybe next week at the kind mind gathering on tuesday october 25th thank you for your support and take care this time of year is, is this meaningful for reflecting on the deceased, the departed, and cherishing our time with loved ones. And I think that's what gave birth to traditions like Dia de los Muertos in Mexico, to make death less taboo. And they probably picked this time of year for Halloween and All Saints Day and these other traditions because nature is dying all around us and yet it's still kind of like a celebration because everybody looks forward to the leaves changing colors and decorating themselves before they really go into their hibernation which is a death-like state and then when winter comes in these regions everything is as if dead until spring but it's Amazing that it comes with all of this flamboyance in the nature. It's natural to want to use this time to reflect on those things and to reflect on impermanence in our life. You know, you have one last day every day. When you get older, it just becomes clear and clear that your days are numbered, your time is limited. That awareness of the brevity of life. That can really be harnessed for purpose, for meaning, for compassion. As I get older, I don't prioritize happiness as much. I don't put a premium on happiness. And the reason for that is because I get this sense that life is just like a long funeral. Everyone you see is the bereaved. I mean, who hasn't lost somebody that deeply mattered to them? And if they haven't, they're... About to and and you will go any day, you know, hopefully not soon. But we all know that is the name of the game: life and death. So if life is like this funeral, because everyone you meet could be grieving, and yet we don't know because we're going about our own business and we forget we're all the bereaved at a long funeral. So if it's a funeral, that means that happiness isn't the real point isn't necessarily the energy you you feel like you're going to bring to the funeral At the same time that doesn't mean that there aren't moments for humor and lightness and in some cases now funerals are actually just celebrations celebration of life but it would also mean that it would make more sense to widen our lens you know to widen our circle of compassion compassion ought to be one of the foundational energies if you see life in that way kindness compassion and non-attachment with openness to joy and laughter but i think we quickly forget that as we get caught up in our own personal stories and we forget how we have the this wide shared experience I wanted to share with you uh, some different ways that people perform funerals around the world. Because since time immemorial, human beings believed that there is something that exists after the body dies. And whatever that spirit is or that non-physical part of our being, It figured prominently in the folklore of almost all the cultures of the world, and that spirit or that essence could interact with the living or in some cases come back to haunt. This is precisely the reason in most civilizations why they had funerals. To actually protect the living from interacting with the dead and to encourage whatever that is to go on and be free and those rituals those ceremonies originally had that in mind and tried to set that intention and as i was reflecting on the different funerals that i've been exposed to or learned about it dawned on me that there is essentially four categories of funeral which is the the right the last rites of the departed or ceremony or way of disposing of the, uh, the corpse. This word corpse is really interesting too. It has a proto-Indo-European meaning of appearance or most likely was a verb to appear. An appearance is almost like a ghost. It's almost like an apparition. You say something appeared that is really brief a light appeared in the sky or we say a rainbow appeared after the rain because we know rainbows are really ephemeral but the corpse the human body is an appearance and when i think of that and the the molecules and particles and atoms that make up a corpse if you could see it uh, on the scale of the earth's life if you could speed it up that many millions of times it would probably just look like Uh, like a little dust storm or a dust devil in the southwest or um, a tornado or even one of those mini like whirlwinds that just like stir up some leaves. You just see like food coming and particles coming and just animating for a little bit and then dispersing. And cemetery is like in the west specifically where we put the remains into the earth and that word cemetery one of its origins is in greek koi materion koi meant a sleeping place so it's pretty evident in all these traditions that that people believed that something was continuing that life wasn't over just the appearance had gone there's this uh, movie called why did bodhidharma go to the east it's a zen movie uh maybe from the 70s and it's about a master and a student. And so much of this movie is silent. It's so transcendental. And at the end, the student cremates his master and then like shakes the, this blanket that has his ashes on it into the wind and seeing that, that whole ceremony unfold. And it's just them two, so it's completely silent. And seeing a person go from being animated to being burned to being completely disintegrated It's very sobering, you know, it really orients you back to the reality. When I was thinking about these different traditions, I realized that funerals fall into four categories. And I don't know that I've ever noticed this organized anywhere. According to the four elements. There's earth funerals. There are water funerals. There are fire funerals. And there are sky funerals maybe one day there'll be space funerals when billionaires start uh, putting themselves out on craft that is just like drifting through the cosmos (laughs) but these these four elements make up four kinds of funerals let me talk about the more unusual one first sky funerals i know this is part of tibetan tradition some buddhist traditions one that comes to mind is in tibet they would put the corpses on top of a mountain as high up in the atmosphere as possible and then they would encourage uh, wild animals to come devour the remains and there were other cultures that performed sky funerals for the same reason zoroastrians had what was called a tower of silence it was a circular structure in ancient persia and now in a limited way, this is still done in India where the Zoroastrians migrated to. They'd put the body on top of the tower and the whole point was for the vultures to take the body. And it would happen within minutes. Since 1990, the Indian government permitted this pain medication called diclofenac to be injected into livestock. And when the vultures would eat the livestock or the some dead animals they were poisoned by this pain medication and it killed off 97 percent of the vultures of subcontinent of asia so by 1990 the remaining zoroastrians could barely perform the ceremony and now it sounds gruesome to have vultures come and devour a body within minutes but it was considered in this tradition to be one's last act of charity. It was a way to dispose of the body as generously as possible, to not let any of of this go to waste, and then the remains would, would fall through this tower of silence and be used in other ways. It was something that was super meaningful, not meant to be horrific, but it, because it was up on a tower it was specifically for the vultures and now that they're gone they've tried other ways to perform this including creating solar mirrors that would help advance the decomposition of the body with fewer vultures available but this has not really been working in modern times so they're trying to find alternative ways to honor this tradition and that was the same for the tibetan people in a particular region of the philippines the Sagada region They tie coffins to cliffs, not specifically for decomposing the body as quickly as these other traditions, but to get the spirit as close to heaven. There was some intermingling with Christian missionaries and ancient shamanistic ceremonies that existed among the indigenous people there. So that's sky funerals. Then there have been water funerals. I have heard of specifically people purposefully submerging bodies in holy rivers in India. But that's not a part of the um, the religious custom to have a body just dumped in the river without being cremated first. So I'll come, come to that. But Nordic countries like Denmark and Iceland had traditions where they put people just out to the ocean on rafts. They had what was called death ships and excavations in modern times have found more evidence of these death ships and the rites and uh, the decorations and so on and the spiritual significance of that in more recent times a lot of indigenous populations would put people on canoes on rivers and and send them out and they do this in um, in the pacific islands canoes or rafts and candles and lights and decorations and send the person out into the water then one one of the more common common ones that we would readily recognize even in the West is fire, fire funerals. So it's sky funerals. We had water funerals. There's been fire funerals, specifically cremation. This goes back to ancient Greece and Rome. And that's how it got introduced to the West. It preceded Christianity and it was quite noble and um, a status symbol to be cremated in the most luxurious manner. Especially if you were a soldier, there's even a, a story in um, one of the Roman poets, epic poems about a war, I can't remember now, but well, it was the Trojan War. In the Trojan War, there was a 12-day truce so that the, the soldiers could cremate the dead so far. So on battlefields, they would cremate the slain soldiers so that they could return the remains to the families. It wasn't practical to bring the bodies back but they would put them all in in separate urns. And when it was a a really big hero, they would make this more lavish. They would put the the flames out with wine. They would clean the bones off with wine. They would use herbs and scents. And the higher the fire went, the more heroic the soldier was. And then this also translated to the affluent people in ancient Rome and Greece, having nicer and nicer fires for their death. And then eventually christianity emerged in those regions and cremation stopped in the west because it was seen to be interfering with the belief that the soul and body gets reunited some early christians and to this day people believe that somehow the body is going to reconnect with the soul and then um, that gave way to burials in the earth in coffins i'd mentioned before that it's likely we put people in coffins in the west or in christian traditions because it was an exchange of cultural beliefs with the norse mythology people who worshipped a holy tree called Yggdrasil, which was the world tree sort of like in lord of the rings there's these different levels of existence there's this middle tree where humans live in this norse cosmology And it was also believed that at the end of the world, everything would be withdrawn into the cosmic tree. So putting people in coffins, even among Christians was a a symbol of the trunk of Yggdrasil. And there was probably an exchange with the Christmas tree because the Christmas tree is an evergreen and the evergreen was a symbol of the Norse tree, the holy tree, because it doesn't die in the winter it's considered um, a symbol of the eternal tree. Western people uh, went ahead and adopted that tree at Christmas, which is a you know a Christian holiday, using something symbolic of the Norse people and probably as a way of converting them. Um, so since then, that evolved westward and included people being put in coffins and being buried and also connects with the the wisdom of ashes to ashes and dust to dust, meaning that we came from the earth, we go back to the earth. And this has evolved also here in America with different pagan traditions and other earth-based wisdom traditions. And there's been different ways now that people make this more environmentally friendly, burying people and becoming part of the fertilization of, of uh, plants or flowers or trees and making that into a memorial. So we know more about earth burials earth funerals in in the west and then there was the fire funeral i, I mentioned a little bit about about it coming from um, ancient greece but it's so common in india and it's so public in india living there for some time if you were to go into the into any of the villages or the communities or gathering places, you would inevitably come across a cremation ceremony. The dead bodies usually paraded through the village with family and then brought to the river because the rivers were holy, especially the Ganges, the Ganga, and even smaller rivers, the the remains would be put in there in hopes that it would meet up with one of the larger holy rivers. In India, this happens in such an intense way Usually this process starts like within a day of the person dying. The oldest son would be the first person to perform the ceremony. Imagine your father's died and like within 24 hours, you have to light the body on fire. You have to cremate your loved one. And it also included putting three marks on the dead body or near the dead body in the sand that represented the individual Yama, who is the god or deity of death in Hinduism, and Kala, which means time. And then the son would use a bamboo stick after the body's burning to bust a hole into the head and skull of his father to let the spirit out. And you just think of the the emotional intensity of a scene like that. Then there's ongoing rituals for the next 40 days at certain times to support that spirit going on. And it's thought that when the soul is seeing its own body being burned, it sort of like gets the message that it's over. If you kept the body too long, it might get confused about it being dead. In these subsequent ceremonies or rituals in the 40 days after the death, they do more and more insulting things for for the departed and I never really understood that at first and then somebody told me that by doing that it encourages any of those spirits that want to haunt or hang around their families or their spaces where they live to find detachment as you come back and your family makes a, a meal for you even though they're serving all the people at this funeral right but puts this meal outside away from everybody and keeps doing these subtle insults so that the person won't want to be attached anymore to what they left behind it's a good question julie was saying if you light a body on fire and put it on the water sometimes people do that many of these traditions merge even though i divide it into four it's almost like that's the starting point you know we'll put the body on the water then light it on fire or will burn the body and then take the ashes and spread them in the water. And I think at least in uh, the Vedic traditions, there was this wisdom of the elements going back into each other. The most subtle element is space or akasha in Sanskrit, which is subtler than air. It's so subtle, but yet it's still something sometimes you may hear in science that the universe is expanding more space is being created like space is something there's not like space outside of the universe because it couldn't be outside of the universe then so time and space are properties or qualities within the universe and out of this the vedic people believed that you got air air is subtle too you can't see it but you can feel it It can move in directions, spaces and thought to move, but air moves. It can go up, it can go over, it can move like the wind in any direction. And then you have fire coming out of the air, which needs the air to exist. And the fire goes in one direction it only goes up. Then from the fire came water. The water goes in one direction, it goes down. And then out of the water comes the earth. And the Earth, again, like space, is still. But within the Earth, you have all the other elements. If you take a clump of Earth, you find that it's moist. And there's heat, because in the Earth's core, there's magma. And on the outside, there's the sun. And inside of the Earth, you have the fire being stored as thermal energy. And then there's space, subtle space, and air. So in these funerals, the elements will be merging one into another, starting with the body, which is the earth. So some traditions put it in the earth, and some just took it from there and defleshed it or started to decompose it. excarnation, getting that earth to decompose, whether through vultures or through sunlight or scavenging animals, maybe it's burned and fire and and the earth merges into the fire and ultimately gone into space and from space at least in these eastern traditions the space merges into the divine the, so those are the, the, the rituals around the world in a general way to protect us from being haunted that, that's their evolution but still some of these guys break through and uh, get the best of the living <laughs> i want to share this one zen story i read not too long ago about a couple in love in uh, 13th century China. There was a young girl named Senzhou and a young boy named Ochu in a village. They grew up together, they played together, and they ultimately fell in love with each other. However, Ochu and his family were a little bit lower class than Senjo, the young girl. So her father planned and arranged for her to be married to somebody else. When they informed Ochu, the young man, his heart was broken. So he decided he would no longer stay in that village. And he made his plans to travel and to never return because he couldn't suffer through seeing the love of his life, be married off to somebody else. And he left in the night, and when he made his way to the bank of the river, where he was about to get on his raft, he saw a shadowy figure out of the corner of his eye. And as it approached him, it became clear that it was Senjo, the love of his life. And he was so happy because he realized she must have left in the middle of the night, too, and heard of his plan and decided to break from her arranged marriage and come be with him. And sure enough, that's what she wanted. So Ahochoo was ecstatic, but also it was bittersweet because they had to leave together that night because the families would have never accepted it. So they sailed away and started a family. They had children. And after five years, Senjo would sometimes spontaneously cry, grieving the loss of the community and all her loved ones. and. Ocho would confide also and heard that he was very sad. And so one day they talk and they decide they can no longer bear the grief of abandoning their families. And they decide to go back. Ocho thinks there's nothing they can do now. We we have a family and responsibility. All they can do is reject us from the community. But he said, I'll go speak to your father and I'll try to make amends. So they sail back. When Ocho comes to the old village, he goes to the house of Senjo to speak to the father. The father comes to the door, is surprised to see Ochu. Ocho looks at the old man with kindness and compassion, but also with a lot of emotion in his heart. And he opens up and he says, I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to speak to you about my plan, but I want you to know that I love your daughter and we've taken good care of each other and we've started a family and I've come back to ask for your forgiveness and to see if you'll welcome us back into the village. And this whole time, Senjo's father is looking at Ochu as if he's seen a ghost, but he's also concerned about the mental health of Ochu because he begins to explain to him I don't know what you're talking about. Senjo has been here for the past five years. Senjo is in her room now. Ever since you left, she got sick and was never well enough to to leave home. And she's mostly bedridden with a mysterious illness. And so now Ochu is confused. Is he trying to lie to me, to confuse me? And then the father's saying, but she will be happy to see you. And he tells, tells his daughter that Ochu has returned. And she starts to come down from her room in the house at the same time that his wife, Senjo, is coming up from the boat. And the story goes that the two of them meet and are happy to see each other. And when they go to embrace they merge back into one Senjō. And then the story ends, and it's also a koan. It's meant to be taught from a a master to a student in Zen to contemplate the meaning of the of the ghost of Senjō, which one was the ghost and which one was real. And the master talks to his students, and through contemplation and self-inquiry, they realize that the koan is about the mind and how we live multiple lives at the same time. We don't just live for the present and moving forward as taught by in like Zen mind, beginner's mind. We divide ourselves and send part of our consciousness into a previous life or a previous path or a previous time. We relive it, or we continue to create that narrative. If I was doing this, I would have been here, or I should have been here by now. Or what if I had done this by now? And in that way, the mind is a mind, or an ego is an ego. So in Zen, it's expressed through these koans that the mind only exists when it has doubt, when it has these thoughts, when these questions occur. If there's total stillness that line of thinking or that projection of a self doesn't occur so the story is all a reflection of how we create an ego and we create multiple egos through thought and through living on different timelines like the multiple senjos so with that i want to read a poem by emily dickinson and i'd like you to sit for meditation but just try to relax your mind maybe set your things down now imagine you're an old house your body is the house and it could be haunted because there's been a lot of different thoughts lurking in that space so just empty this house empty your mind whatever thoughts are floating around whatever ghosts are there let them float away and try to make your mind and senses receptive. Your ears are open to this poem. And as you allow it in, let it go where it wants to go. Let it echo how it wants to echo and then we'll, we'll contemplate it afterwards together. So here it goes. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house the brain has corridors surpassing material place. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than its interior confronting that cooler host. Far safer through an abbey gallop the stones a chase than unarmed one's a self encounter in lonesome place. Our self behind ourself concealed should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment, be horror's least. The body borrows a revolver, he bolts the door or looking a superior specter or more. The mind has its fear, which creates ghosts in the mind like we were talking about before this line, ourself behind ourselves, we are torturing ourselves, sometimes haunting ourselves. The struggle of rumination comes to mind as the ghost of the past. It's deceased. That moment in time is dead. And we need to bury it, we need to perform the funeral for it. When a thought comes to you strongly, and you're aware of it even if it's a disturbing thought there's a big difference between i hate my job and oh i'm having i'm having the thought that i hate my job the moment you have that kind of meta attention there's no longer identification with the thought you don't have to inhabit the thought that we can get some sense of freedom from the ghost of that, or the possession of that. You could say that's when like the ghost in the mind actually possesses the person, when there's no separation between thought and belief.